Thanks for coming. I'm glad you're here. Um, so, so here's the question. What do you do after your entire world has been destroyed around you? And the answer is, you go forward. And you see it in the, in the Parshas of the Torah. You have Parshas Noach that we just had, where the entire world gets destroyed in front of the eyes of Noach and his family. And then what's the name of the next Parsha? Parsha's Lech Lecha, which means keep moving, don't stop. Just keep moving forward. And the Torah is telling us, I mean, I mean, if that's not, it's a, if that's not life simplified or boiled down to its, uh, to two sentences, I don't know what it is. When the world is destroyed around us, the answer is to keep moving. Um, because, as we've said, the mere fact that there is a world, that there is us, is proof that there's still God. And God is not playing games with the world. So the mere fact that there's a God means that there's a purpose for creation, which means that there's something left to do. We talked about it, but I think it's important to review because it's an important idea. It says in the... Gomorrah compares the soul of a person to God in the world. So the parallel is, just like the soul keeps a person animated, that's the relationship between the soul and the body, the soul keeps the person alive, so too does God keep the world alive. So you see there's a direct parallel between the soul and a person and God in the world. So what's the difference? Because there's a very big difference. When the soul, after 120, departs from a person, the physical body remains. The soul ascends, and the physical body remains. And we know we have to bury the body. There's, uh, the, body is, the body is still there. Were God, however, to depart from the physical world, the world would not exist anymore. Unlike the body, which continues to exist, the world itself would no longer exist. Everything would just... Gone. All of existence gone. So the mere fact that there's us is proof that there's still God. And the mere fact that there's still God means that there's something left for us to do. And the fact that God is good means that all of our deeds are valued and watched over and desired. So Lech Lecha, there's so much going on in Lech Lecha. It seems like Seems like everything changes in a very, very big way. You know, there's, um, there's kind of a, a debate. We know that Abraham and Sarah were the first Jews. So if Abraham and Sarah were the first Jews, what was the status of Adam Harishon, Adam and Chava? Were they Jewish? Were they not Jewish? What's, what's the deal? So, so they had mitzvahs. They had two mitzvahs to tend the garden, to work the garden. And we say that 
encompassed within those two mitzvahs were all the mitzvahs aseh and the mitzvahs lotaseh, all the positive commandments and all the negative commandments. We know that they recognize God. Of course they knew God. In fact, the Medrash says something very beautiful, which is that Adam, and I want to throw in a Ramban here because it's very strong, Adam, we know, was charged with naming all of the animals. Now, this is before Eve, before Chava was brought into existence, okay? So right now it's just Adam. He's all alone. And Adam names all the animals. And it says whatever he named them, that, that name remained. And it's very interesting because on a deeper level we learn that since Hashem created the world with the letters of the Aleph Bays, and since this was before Adam and Chava ate from the Eitz Adas, before they sort of lowered the world in terms of the clarity of the existence and the knowledge of Hashem, everything was crystal clear. And so since God created the world through the letters of the Olive Bays, the Olive Bays, which combinations of the letters each thing was created out of, was very clear to Adam. So when he named the animals, what he was doing was he was reading their holy essence, the combinations of the letters inside of them, and he was giving them the name of what they were. So, so there was utter clarity. Now listen to this. It's a very, very strange medrash, but this is a very, very clear way of understanding it. This is from the Ramban. Listen to this. The Medrash says that when he named the animals, that he actually had intimate relations with them. So, what, how are we to understand that? Why? What's going on exactly? And um, it's, a very, it's a very deep teaching what, what that means exactly. But let me just tell you one idea. So, the idea was like this. That... Adam, before Chava came into the world, before Chava was created, Adam had to realize that none of these other things that existed in the world belonged to him, were, were his soulmates. He had to realize that none of these things were his soulmates. But even more deep than that, he had to realize that he was not an animal. That that wasn't his his peer group, that he was above the animals. He didn't belong to them. And so on a very deep level, he understood that none of these things are my match, that I exist on a higher level than all of these things. And so then Chava comes into the world, and he's able to appreciate Chava. And you know, I saw something that I thought was very, very striking. Hashem says... To Adam and Chava, he's explaining the nature of the world. I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, quoting the Pasuk exactly. This is just a paraphrase. But he says, it says that, so Adam, you know, took Chava to be a wife. And so it is that, that, that a man takes a wife and they start their own family. Okay? That's, that they, they leave their parents and they, they start their own, their, their own family. So, one of the mitzvahs that they learn out, that the rabbis learn out from that Pasuk, is that a man and a wife are exclusive to each other, and that 
There's no adultery, there's no extramarital relationships that are permissible once a man takes a wife, that's it, they're each for each other. So when I learned that, I thought that was really, really striking. Because who is Adam going to go off with? There are no other women in the world. Who's Chava going to go off with? There are no other men in the world. So why are they getting the mitzvah of not to commit adultery when it's impossible to commit? So, so when I thought that, I thought of something else, and I thought, wow, what a great bracha for a chasen and kala. Because a chasen and kala, a bride and a groom, when they get married, they have to be like Adam and Chava. And it has to be on the level, when they get married, that there are no other men in the world, and there are no other women in the world. When a man and a woman gets married today, that they're the only ones... They're the only ones that exist for each other. But let's return back to the question. What's the status of Adam and Chava? Were they Jewish? Were they not Jewish? So, so interestingly, it says that the Moris Hamach Pela, the gravesite of the Avos, which the Zohar says is the entrance into Gan Eden, right? That's where heaven and earth kiss. That who's buried there? Well, we have Abraham and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivka, Yaakov and Leah. Some say the head of Esav. Okay. And who else? Adam and Chava. Adam and Chava are in there also. Not only that, but one of the most kind of uh, wild uh, Midrashim I mean, is that when Abraham went to bury Sarah, that 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 Chava and Chava and Adam got out of their graves because they were so ashamed that they had brought death into the world and exile into the world. Can you imagine? Can you can you picture this? Abraham, I mean, I have the chills just saying it. Abraham is digging the plot and rising literally from the graves are Adam and Chava who are so ashamed to be in the presence of Abraham and Sarah. And how did Abraham console Adam and Chava? He said, no, no, no. He says, we're coming to fix what you did. Don't worry. And they... And they were consoled, and then they laid back down. So, so there's a turning point that we should find personally very, very empowering, which is that, remember, the world was supposed to end on the seventh day. The world as we know it was supposed to end on the seventh day of creation, meaning to say that Adam and Chava were supposed to follow the desire of Hashem, and not to eat from the tree of knowledge. By the way, it was our destiny to eat from the tree of knowledge. That was not going to be forbidden to us forever. We just had to eat from the tree of life first. But we mixed it up, and everything became subjective reality. You know, I hope I can say over this thought properly. Um... 
When we ate from the tree of knowledge, you see, there's a big question that you can ask yourself. What's wrong with knowledge? <laughs> right? Why was it so bad that we ate from the tree of knowledge? Aren't we all about knowledge? Who's written more books on the Torah and wisdom and even secular wisdom, the sciences? Who's written more than the Jews? No one. We're way into knowledge. We love knowledge. So why, when we ate from the tree of knowledge, did everything go wrong? So the Rambam says something very clear. He says that before we ate from the tree of knowledge, there was an objective view of truth in the universe. It was sort of like on the black and white level. It was on the level of truth and falsehood. Not good and bad. Good and bad are subjective terms. Right? You like parsimons? I don't know what they are. And I don't want to try them. You know? So that's good for you. For me, it's not so good. When Lovin is chasing after Yaakov, Hashem gives him a vision, and Hashem says to him, remember, Lovin was like a really bad guy. And it says that the Gilgul of Lovin is Bilam, who tried to wipe out the Jews. And in fact, Lovin tried to wipe out the Jews before the Jews started, when they were just a family, when it was just Yaakov and his family. So, Lovin's a bad guy. Why is he called Lovin? Lavan means white in Hebrew. Why is he called white? Because oftentimes the Yetzahara comes to you dressed like a rabbi. And he gets you to do things that you're not ready to do yet. He tries to raise you up to a level that you're not at yet, knowing that you're going to fall. And that you'll give the whole thing up. The Yetzirah is very smart. It says, okay, so I'll trade one big mitzvah for a lifetime of quitting and depression. It's worth it. It's worth it to me. So, so sometimes the Yetzirah masks itself as a positive influence. This is why a person needs a Rebbe. It's why a person needs a teacher. To, to, in order to scale, I want to take this on. Or the teacher says, you know what, you're ready to take this on. And then you can proceed in a normal way. If a person just goes instinctually, then it becomes very, very tricky. You see, it says, it says there, there are two words in Hebrew that are very close to each other. And the Chachamim say, there's cherus, which means freedom, and there's another word which means engraved. How do you say it? It sounds like cherus. Charut. So it's in Perkei Avos. So they say, don't say that the letters were engraved. Say that they give you freedom. So now let me ask you something. Something that's engraved. There's nothing free about something that's engraved. <laughs> Once it's carved in, hello, it's there. What's, what's free about something that's carved in? Nothing. So the way I had it explained to me, very great insight into a person's psychology and very important to a person's advancement in spirituality, which is that in a person's mind, the concept of truth is always moving around. And this is partially because of the way the Yetzirah works, partially because the Yetzirah will sometimes, the evil inclination will sometimes disguise itself in white and try to lead a person toward a false concept of truth. 
So uh, this induces what psychologists today call neurosis. Because if truth is always moving around inside your head, where do I go? I want to do the right thing. I have a neshama. I have a godly soul. I want to do the right thing. But today I think this is the right thing, and tomorrow I think this is the right thing. How, how am I supposed to be, here's the key word, how am I supposed to be free to pursue the truth? And the answer is, is that Hashem frees us by engraving the truth and making it a fixed point. And once it's a fixed point, my mind doesn't have to rattle around and wonder where it is. It's fixed. And that frees me to pursue it. But this has to be with a rabbi. Someone who knows something. Because then it's not a moving target. The truth is fixed. It's engraved. And that frees me to pursue it. So now let's get back to Adam and Chava and Abraham and us. Because there's a big turning point in the world. And it's funny because if you attend enough talks, you'll eventually hear this. But it was a long time before I heard this. Which is that there's a huge turning point that happens in the history of the world that people don't talk about so much. It happens at the end of Noah. It's the whole Tower of Babel account. And what happened at this point, basically, was God said, okay, you know what? I'm not going to do my fundamental fixing of the world through the world at large, although, very important continuation of this sentence, although the entire world has a share in the Torah, and the entire world has heavenly work to do. We have the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach, this is not a joke, everyone has a share in the Torah. However, God makes a transition to saying, I'm going to start with a specific people, and a specific family, and this is going to go to Abraham and to Sarah and to the Jewish people. So, so, so Adam and Chava, Adam and Chava, were not supposed to eat from the tree of knowledge until first they ate from the tree of life, and then Shabbos was going to come. Remember, they were only created hours before Shabbos. Shabbos was going to come, and that was going to be the fixing of the world. That was going to be the end of history. So the way Rabbi Green explained it to me, and it's such a, a, a kind of a mind-expanding way to view world history, is that all of world history is an extension of Erev Shabbos. In other words, we were created, human beings were created a few hours before Shabbos. And so what Hashem keeps on doing is expanding the time until Shabbos comes. We're living in Erev Shabbos. And sometimes it gets longer when, when we have to fix something. He gives us, and he keeps on giving us opportunity to bring Shabbos in. Something that I realized, which sort of blew my mind, which was, you know, we have something called, um, the mitzvah of, um, Hashavas Aveda, which means to return a long object. That word, Hashavas, is Hashabbat. <laughs> it means a lost object, returning a lost object, Returning the lost Shabbos. What's the lost Shabbos? The lost Shabbos was that first Shabbos. Because it was supposed to be the ultimate fixing of the whole world. 
Now it's lost. So what we're doing is, we're doing mitzvahs to return that Shabbos back to the world. Okay, so now, Hashem had Adam and Chava and everyone who came till the Tower of Babel. That was going to be the agency of fixing. And then a transition happens. This transition to Abraham and Sarah and to this concept called the Jewish people. Now on a deeper level, we know that the idea of the Jewish people was in Hashem's mind from the very beginning. It says, Bereshis. And if you look at the Rashi there, Bereshis, for the sake of the Reshis, of the first ones. The Navi calls the Jewish people the Reshis. So for the sake of the Jewish people, the world was created. Meaning for the perfection that God desired for the world. For the work that we're all doing together. So the concept was there even before creation. And yet we arrive at it in this way. Very interesting. Just the the cheshbonos, the different heavenly accounts of how God directs the universe. So now we have to go to the Maharal. So, so everyone asks the big question. You know, when God said Lech Lecha, the Katskarevi says that God said it to the whole world. But only Avraham listened. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Avraham is the only one who heard it, took it seriously, and proceeded. That in itself is an unbelievable thought. Especially when you think what it says in Perkei Avos, that the Torah, that the call from Har Sinai is still going on in the world. Do you know what that means? That means that Lech Lecha is still being said. We say, okay, so back then, what would I do? Would I have listened? Would I have been like Abraham? Ah, maybe yes, maybe not, but it's irrelevant because that was a long time ago. Guess what? <laughs> it's still going on. The call of the Torah, the voice of the Torah is still emanating from Mount Sinai. You know, I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of Rebbe Nachman that you know what makes the biggest sound in the entire world? Anger. And that anger is blocking out that call. There's so much anger in the world. So, so now we have Lech Lecha. So Avraham Avinu hears it. But everybody wants to know, how come it doesn't say why Avraham, who is 75 years old, by the way, you want to chart your own spiritual progression in your own life. His life really began at 75. I mean, he had already been through a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. But nonetheless, we pick up his story at age 75. So anyone who's a little younger than that can afford to be a little bit patient with themselves. (laughs) Let's put everything in perspective. Moshe had a very busy life, but his... His mission, his official mission, starts by the burning bush. How old was he then? 80 years old. <laughs> Let's just keep things in perspective. And people weren't living till 300 and 800 back then. Moshe lived to 120, which is more or less our lifespan, you know? So, so just keeping everything in perspective here. So what does the Maharal say? How come, here's our question, how come it doesn't talk about the reason why Hashem spoke to Avraham. Let's have like a great mitzvah. Avraham did X. And we know he did great things. 
He did great things. Why aren't any of them listed in the Torah? It just starts off, Lech Lecha, God speaking to Avraham. So the Maharal says something very, 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 very deep and very, 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 very beautiful. He says, you know what? Hashem chose Avraham for no reason at all. Because if you choose someone for a reason, then once the reason goes away, your love for the person goes away. But if you choose someone beyond reason, then that connection is a forever connection. So Hashem's love for Abraham was so deep, and it was really, you know, we talk about today, you know, causeless love. That love that's just given for, just on the beyond level. So this was, this is the best example you can get. This is Hashem choosing Avraham Avinu just on the beyond level. And so why is this empowering to us? Because you see, you see it says every single person, it says in the Talmud, if you save one life, it's like you save the whole world. We have microcosms in our world. A microcosm is like where the entire um, structure exists in miniature in a single object. We have microcosms and microcosms and microcosms in, in Torah. On some level, each mitzvah contains all the other 613 commandments. We know each neshama is connected with all the other neshamas. We know every one of our neshamas has a spark of Moshe Rabbeinu in it. And Moshe receives the Torah. So every, it's all microcosms, you know? Every time a chassan and kala stands under the chuppah, remember the Torah from Reb Shlomo, I heard him say, he blessed a chassan and kala and he said, listen, he says, he says, one couple put us into this whole mess? So who's to say one couple won't take us out? <laughs> and as long as one couple's going to take us out, why shouldn't it be the two of you? <laughs> so, so we have... Worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds. And so this, this fundamental shift that takes place from going for the, for, for the whole world to do the job of fixing of Adam and Chava, which is what it was up to the Tower of Babel, to God saying, okay, let's like rack focus, just zoom in on one couple and one family. And that's going to be a microcosm for everything else. So that's, that's interesting. Because it means that even though we've downshifted in terms of the size of the group that's doing the critical work, that work is being done on a totally cosmic level. It's no less cosmic for the increased focus that's extant. So when we go through life and we do our thing, we have to understand that we're really doing it on behalf of the entire world. That that's, that's what we've been charged with. You know, we see in modern technology many examples of this where, where the smallness of something is, is not in proportion to its power. And I'll give you two examples, but there are many examples. 
if you think of a huge um, uh, electrical uh, plant where all the electricity is made for a city or something like that, it's giant, giant machinery, giant, giant machinery. But there's one on and off switch. One switch is determining this entire, this entire structure. And I'll give you what I think is an even better example than that. You split an atom, you destroy the world. What's smaller than an atom? So, so this is us right now. I mean, the, the crazy thing is, and what's so ironic, what's so, what's so heartbreakingly ironic, tragic, maybe, I don't know the words really, is that the world recognizes the power of the Jewish people more than the Jewish people recognize the power of the Jewish people. But the way the world recognizes the power of the Jewish people is in the form of anti-Semitism. By blaming every single thing going wrong in the world on us. And we say, they're crazy! And on some level, it, it really is like born from like a pathology. You know, um, Rabbi, uh, or rather, uh, Professor uh, Dershowitz pointed out, he wrote a, a history of anti-Semitism. He said the word anti-Semitism was actually, this is really, this is really nutty. The word anti-Semitism was, was, was thought up, was created by an anti-Semite. <laughs> in order to give prestige to anti-Semitism. Like, in the time that that word was created, that was a very elegant, very prestigious term for the hatred of Jews. Anti-Semitism. It sounds academic, if you think about it. It sounds like, oh yes. Are you an art lover? Oh yes, I love Impressionism, anti-Semitism. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's really, it's a very... <laughs> It's a very elegant word, if you think about it. And it was created by a scholarly Jew-hater to mask the hatred. And so what Professor Dershowitz proposed was that we stop using this term and we use the term Judeopathy. Judeo meaning Jewpathy, meaning a sickness. To correctly identify it as a, as a pathology. Very interesting. The point, though, is, and I say this, the irony of ironies, is that they are tapping into something very, very real, which is the greatest power in the world is the Jewish people as a nation returning to God. It is the definition of the term the sleeping giant. What's a sleeping giant? It's, you know, if you think of like the Gulliver's Travels kind of thing, where you've got a giant to sleep on the ground, and all these little Lilliputians, right, tying with like thread his legs down and everything like that, until he gets annoyed, <laughs> and then he just stretches like a giant, and he gets up and he breaks through all these chains. That literally is, that's the Jewish people. If the Jewish people as a nation wake up and keep Shabbos, 
They just wake up and they keep Shabbos. That's literally this, this force in the world rising up and transforming the entire world. So, so let's keep on going. So Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha famously means basically go forth. So I saw Rabbi Weinberg, um, Rabbi Simcha Weinberg, um, you know, was, was connecting it to, um, to our travel through life, which I think is interesting, you know? The idea that all of us, it's, it's one great travel through this world. It's one lech lecha through this world. And he said, and it was great because he had like some footnotes in this, um, in this um, Devar Torah that he wrote up. And he got to this one thought and it had a footnote on it and I scrolled down feverishly like, who, 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 who is this? Who is this? I can't wait to quote this. So, so what was the thought? He said, in the name of a Kabbalist, he said, um, he said that this Kabbalist said, Lech Lecha, or rather said, Tefilas HaDerech, which is the prayer, that's the traveler's prayer, quote unquote, the prayer that you go be, before you go on a trip. Every morning when he woke up, he would say, Tefilas HaDerech, because each day was a new trip through his life. And then he had the footnote. I was like, oh, that blows my mind. Who said that? And then I looked at the footnote and he says, I'm still trying to find the source. <laughs> you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And maybe there's someone who's saying it. Maybe there's someone who isn't saying it. It doesn't matter. The point is, is that it's awesome. It's an awesome, that's an awesome consciousness. You know that every morning you're on a trip. I love that. And that's life. You see, see, but it gets trickier now. Because traveling, you know, we travel for pleasure and things like that. But traveling in general is kind of a bummer. (laughs) I'll tell you what I mean by that. It says actually that if a person works close to their parnosa, if a person doesn't have to travel a big distance for their livelihood, that's called by the Torah blessing. The idea that you have to keep on traveling and you have to be away from your family and your home, it says it cuts down on the number of children that a person has, it cuts down on a person's lifespan, it cuts down on a person's renown, because the idea is you establish yourself in a certain community and then you leave, so they don't remember you in the first community and then you come to a new community and they don't know who you are in the first community. So traveling in general is not, is not considered a, a, a great blessing. That's not to say people shouldn't go on trips. Um, you know, there's a famous story, I think it's told about uh, uh, Rabbi Samson Rafael Hirsch who was taking a trip to the Alps. And they said, why are you going to the Alps? And he said, because it says, it says in the Talmud Yerushalmi that, I'm going to, that a person is going to have to give an account on any fruit or anything like that 
that was a, a, an open demonstration of God's goodness in the world that a person didn't take part in. So when God is going to ask me, how come I never saw the Alps? They're so beautiful. I'm going to have to give an account. So I want to go and see the beauty of the Alps in order to, you know, to behold God's beneficence, God's, God's goodness in the world. So this level of traveling is, is certainly per- permissible, obviously. But, but the idea of the, the rigors of travel on a, on a continual basis, this, this is not as much of a blessing. Now listen to this. The Chernobyl Rebbe was very involved in freeing captives. And it happened to be, and you know, to free captives you have to raise ransoms. And the ransoms were, you know, they would figure out what's the most a Jewish community could afford. And so they were, you know, it was, it was a terrible hardship on, on, on the Jewish people for a long time. And, you know, everyone would have to give money they didn't even have in order to ransom the captive. And it was, it was very, very difficult. This was a reality that we're not living with as much anymore. By the way, having said that, you know, um, Jonathan Pollard um, is in prison uh, for doing his best to help the Jewish people in America. And um, right now, because it's the end of the Bush presidency, he has a, Bush has a window here. When presidents leave office, they always pardon a certain number of people. So there's a window here right now for President Bush to, to pardon Jonathan Pollard and to get him out of prison. It's sort of the best opportunity for Jonathan Pollard to be released in many, many years before, and we should know from it, but we don't know what's going to be with him if, if the pardon doesn't take place. So um, there are various campaigns. You can just Google free Jonathan Pollard or whatever it is, and it'll send you to the sites. I've called the White House, and everyone should really call the White House or email the White House in order to do this because it's a very big mitzvah to free captives, and this, this definitely falls into that category. I remember I, uh, I, I called and I got a... I got an operator, this was a couple of weeks ago, and the person said, yes, would you like to leave a message for the president? And I, you know, I hadn't really prepared my words. <laughs> and I, I, I said, I'd like to thank President Bush for eight great years, and I'd like to ask him to free Jonathan Pollard. And I was happy that the words came out that way, because I thought that that was... That was an appropriate phrasing. But you'll come up with your own words. But anyway, um, oh yeah, go ahead. What's the number? It's 202. 202-4. Okay. If you want to grab a pen, if you're listening to this on tape, yes. that's a good time to grab a pen. Or grab the phone. 202-4-5-6. Yeah. 202 1414. And you'll get, the, um, you'll get the White House. And the person will take down your message and you'll ask them, you know, to, to free Jonathan Pollard. I'm pretty sure it's 24 hours. Right? Yeah. It's all the times. Yep. So, um, so, so the Chernobyl Rebbe was going around freeing captives and trying to raise the, the money, which was a very hard job, as you can imagine. And um, someone in a 
community that he went into spread um, some slander about the Chernobyl Rebbe, and he himself was arrested. So now the Chernobyl Rebbe, who is really one of the greatest of the Hasidic masters, also known as the Meor Enayim, which is one of the classic Hasidic um, uh, texts. And um, by the way, one thing I was just learning a little this morning, one thing that he, he says is that every single person in their own life has ten tests, just like Avraham Avinu. So, so we're tested. This is part of what it means to be in this world. This is part of how we bring about the completion of the world, is through going through tests and through, you know, through passing them, basically. This brings about the completion of the world when this happens. This is the agency, and we're all doing it together. So while he was imprisoned, he was reflecting upon the irony, to say the least, of the fact that he's going around freeing captives, and here he is sitting in jail. So that night he had a dream that he reported. And you know what? I mean, can we just pause a moment? To, how lucky are we to know anything that the Mayor and I am dreamed? You know, just... Whether you like the story or not, <laughs> just to hear a dream that the Chernobyl Rebbe had, that in and of itself is, is a gavolt, you know? You know, it says the Balatanya, he's the first Rebbe of Lubavitch, the Balatanya was collecting money on behalf of the Chernobyl Rebbe. You know, we, we receive letters all the time in the mail, people collecting for everyone, and, and uh, you know, in shuls, people collect for themselves and for other institutions and everything like that, right? And you don't know. You, you, hopefully, you give to everyone. But you don't know really who, where it's going. I mean, hopefully, it's going to the right source, but you don't necessarily know who these people are. But to think that the Balatanya was collecting for the Chernobyl Rebbe, that means that those people in their life had an opportunity to give a dollar to the Chernobyl Rebbe. You know what I would give to be able to give a dollar to the Chernobyl Rebbe? You know? So, so anyway, here, here is, uh, here's what he dreamed. He said, he dreamed that, um, that because he's so involved in the mitzvah of freeing captives, Hashem allowed him to be a captive, an actual captive himself, in order for him to realize how great a mitzvah it is to free captives. And to give him even more strength in terms of pursuing this mitzvah. Now let's just take a moment again, because you know, a person's head has to be screwed on correctly. This whole world is so confusing that if you don't know how to read life, you're going to get buried. You're going to get buried. You're not going to make it. Let me give you the best example I can, although this is as good a one as, as you can give. So let's just go to that. How many people, if they were involved in freeing captives and found themselves in jail, would say, God, I guess you don't want me to free captives. 
I guess everything that I've been doing means nothing to you. I guess you are openly rejecting my heavenly service. How many people would say that? 50%? 70%? 90%? But what does the Rebbe say? One of the greatest Jews ever. What does the Rebbe say? The Chernobyl Rebbe said, Ah, Hashem is showing me what it means to be a captive so I can pursue this mitzvah of freeing captives even better. This is, these are different eyes. What's the name of his book? The, Me, the Me, Meor Enayim, The Light of the Eyes. This is, this is how to see the world. This is the truth. God isn't trying to shut us down with tests. Hashem says to Abraham Avinu, Lech lecha, leave everything. You've got a good thing going in Haran. They made many converts in Haran. You know, there was a whole kihila. There was a whole big community. And he had already left Ur. He had already left another place. So seemingly, he's already left the bad place. Now Hashem says, okay, now leave Haran. So you think, okay, so I'm going to leave Haran. I'm going to leave this whole thing that I, this whole community I built essentially. I'm going to go, and now life is going to be good. And you know what Hashem gives him in, when he gets to Canaan, to Israel? Um, you know what, you know what the special of the day is, Abraham? Famine. <laughs> We're serving famine today, and tomorrow, and the next day. It's like, what? I just did that? What? And that's all of us again. We're freeing captives and we end up in jail. We listen to God and we change our lives upside down. And it's like, where's the food? Let me repeat how we opened up today's talk. What do you do when the entire world around you gets destroyed? You keep moving. Noach lech lecha. You don't stop. You don't stop. You keep on moving. You've got a headache? You know what? It's mincha. Davin mincha. Then you can finish with your headache. (laughs) You can continue with your headache. You've got an important business appointment? But you just, you just wash for bread, you know what? Bench, and then go to your important business appointment. Don't stop. Don't stop. 